We rely on translators for access to much of the world's most important literature, but unfortunately, there is no precise formula to choosing comparable words from one language to the other. In fact, much of what we're reading when we pick up a book like *The Brothers Karamazov* or *Madame Bovary* is technically untranslatable, or at least changes when placed in the context of a different language. According to our next guest, there's no such thing as a literal translation. Rather, it's a task that veers into the philosophical and depends on each individual word, language set, and text. Joining us now on today's Please Explain are Esther Allen, a professor at Baruch College. Welcome back to our show. Hello. And also Jacques Lesra, professor of Spanish, English, and comparative literature at NYU. I'm very pleased that both of you could be here. And uh, if and now to our audience, if you have a question about translating the untranslatable, you can give us a call at 212-433-9692. Leave a, sh- a comment on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Um, so let me begin with you, Esther. How did you become interested in becoming a translator? Um, well, it's a it's a silly reason, really. I spent my junior year abroad in Paris um, and loved France, and you know, simply wanted to convey that to the people around me, and uh, you know, started translating. And Jacques? Oh, I grew up in Spain. My mom is from Wheeling, West Virginia. My dad is from Tangier, and uh, we grew up in a household where I was always caught between languages, between uh, Sephardic languages like Hebrew, uh, Haketia, Spanish, French, and uh, English. But uh, you translate German and Portuguese, despite the fact that you don't speak either of them. How do you do that? Uh, with the aid of enormous numbers of dictionaries <laughs> and, and friends. Uh, I tend to use uh, German and Portuguese for my work a little bit, um, and very often run into problems uh, that don't work terribly well in the translation. For Portuguese, it's fairly easy because my Spanish is native, and I, I tend to try to pull my Spanish in to help me out with, uh, with the Portuguese. The German is just, uh, I slog through things using dictionaries. Esther, you're joining us from Miami, where you're attending the American Translator Association Conference. What's going on there? Well, as as we speak, I am missing panels about uh, breaking the silence, interpreting for victim services, uh, tips on working for the U.S. federal government, and risk analysis for medical devices. So all kinds of things are going on. And 1,500 people from 50 countries. And you're there representing the American Literary Translators Association? No, I'm, I'm only here because I was invited to speak. Uh, do are there different groups that have different approaches to translation? Are, are there lots of arguments over uh, the suitable way to approach translating? Yes, there certainly are. So, um, go ahead. Well, uh, the, the, I would say that there are. Uh, it's hard to divide it up into camps, but there are, it sort of veers from people who who think that it is unfortunate that uh, we can't just readily, that, tr- that words don't lo- work like numbers, and we can't just transfer 
uh, you know, you can just always transfer one number into another number without any loss, without any change, right? Um, uh, but, uh, and, and I guess there's some people who feel that we would all be better off if language worked that way. And then there are people like me, and I suspect Jacques, who, who, would re, who regard the, the essential untranslatability of language as, as being one of the really important things that makes us human. So, so Jacques, there's no such thing as a literal translation. Wouldn't we want a translation at the UN to be as literal as possible? I think that there are d degrees of literalness or, or literality, and then there are different domains in which approaching or being more distant from uh, the literal can be more or less problematical. A, a good example would be uh, if I if I'm interested in going to a, a shop and buying a bit of bread in. in English, I, I ask for a bit of bread. In Spanish, I ask for pan, and I go to a boulangerie in Paris and ask for a baguette. Um, I'll get slightly different things, but there's no question that there would be a comprehensible way of my, for me to go into the French uh, boulangerie and point to the, the, the baguette and say, uh, I want bread and, and to get the baguette. So this is the question of whether that's a translatable or untranslatable situation seems to me uh, complicated because what I mean when I say bread varies if I'm saying it in Spanish, if I say it in French, if I say it in German, because the word bread is embedded in a bunch of different social matrices and, and kind of ways of thinking and speaking and imagining, and it has different weight in different societies. Uh, but nevertheless, I'll be handed an, a baguette or a bit of bread at the end of the day. Matters get much trickier when that level of imprecision or non-literalness applies to a word like, I don't know, happiness, the pursuit of happiness, uh, uh, or, or the word liberty, or, or the word love, which has, they probably have cognates in the different languages, but the semantic range, the meaning range that these words cover is so different uh, that you have to make choices that end up being very, very important and very dangerous choices. I mean, you can imagine the, the wars that might be fought over different definitions of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, where happiness means one thing to the English speaker, and bonheur means something to the French speaker, and felicidad means something to the Spanish the Spanish speaker, and you put them in the, in the same room, and uh, you want to approach as close as possible to some common uh, sense that these three versions of happiness might have, but you'll never hit something that's identical, that kind of numerical fantasy that uh, Elizabeth was talking about. <clears throat> You're never going to hit that. You're going to get closer or farther. In the case of the, the bread shop, it doesn't matter because I just grabbed a bit of bread and I pay for it, but... On the case, in the case of words like happiness or, or joy or, or freedom or love, it makes an enormous difference, and, uh, and worlds can be at stake in, in negotiating those differences. Esther, even simple words like to be are more complicated than one might imagine. For example, aren't there two to be verbs in Spanish? I, I was wondering, what happens when someone is translating Hamlet? The translation of, I, I mean, if you were, uh, I don't think anyone would occur to translate Hamlet into one of the verbs for to be estar, which implies 
present to be present. That would be Hamlet thinking about should I stay or should I go, like the Cars song, right? That would be a translation of that, whereas to, to, to be in the sense of being, it would very definitely be said. But to follow up on what Jacques was saying, um, one of the things that translation makes us think about and makes clear to us is that as, as much disagreement as there might be between an English speaker and a, and a French speaker, speaker about the differences between happiness and bonheur, um, there's obviously no agreement between English speakers right. about what the word happiness means. And in fact, many of our, many of our politi- much of our political discourse is violent disputes over what constitutes happiness. One person's happiness is open carrying a gun, and another person's happiness is not having any guns. So uh, we don't all agree, even when we're speaking the same language, on what the word And, for example, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Not everyone (laughs) is going to agree with that. (laughs) But uh, talking about to be, there is no verb for to be in Hebrew. So what happens there? Uh, In fact, when when you're reading a a translated text in English, you see is, are, etc. Things are are lost, aren't they? They're always going to be lost, certainly, and uh, the, the, the movement of translation characteristically is thought of as a, a kind of trade-off or an economic process where you're losing some things necessarily because you're going from one language into another one. And in the case of Hebrew, you might be losing some of the things that are attached to your capacity to assert that this is this thing or that I am here or that I was and, uh, and so on. But you gain correspondingly, or not correspondingly, but you gain a bunch of stuff also in the translation, so that not having a verb to be also permits probably certain things to, to happen in Hebrew um, that can't happen in English. And what uh, about German, to be, Dasein? Doesn't that give translators headaches? Oh, it, Dasein gives everybody headaches. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably the philosophical name for a headache, is Dasein, uh, which is a German word that means uh, to be there, um, to be here, to, it means uh, what it means to be, Dasein. It's a word that the <coughs> German philosopher Martin Heidegger uses almost interchangeably with self uh, and uh, at certain points. But we don't have anything like that in, in English. It, the best we can do really is, and this is a convention very often, is just to leave the word in German, uh, italicize, and then put a little footnote at the bottom of the page, which is always the way for the translator to throw up her or his arms and say, oh, I can't, just can't do it. <laughs> I'm really sorry. English can't, English can't do this, and nor can I. And then in that footnote say, by Dasein, Heidegger means the following range of things being being here being present being uh, being present in the world in a certain way um, but since those that list of things can't be compressed in english into a single word we're just going to leave the german and it's that's just it's a it's a kind of convention that we have for certain words like like that headache word design esther haven't english speakers simply appropriated foreign words that seem untranslatable uh, think about german zeitgeist Schadenfreude, but also saute, blasé, amour fou, chutzpah, al dente. Uh, I could probably come up with lots more. Well, I actually.
actually think that that is one of the vast strengths of the English language, that uh, when it encounters something that it doesn't already have, it just it incorporates it into the language and quite often changes its meaning quite a bit in the process, But which, which is basically something that all languages do, but other languages might be more reluctant about it, especially when it comes to words taken from English, given the growing global dominance of English. But to go back to the issue of loss and gain in translation, I, I always think of the metaphor to, to connect our discussion with your previous discussion of the urinal that that um, Marcel Duchamp has placed in an art gallery, right? Mm -hmm. Is there a loss there or is there a gain there? Um, you're, you've recontextualized something. Um, it clearly now has meaning in a different way. Um, as as things always change when they're recontextualized, um, but you've if you've lost some functionalities, obviously you've also gained some aesthetics. So you know which is it really? Now, what happens with poetry? I would think that would be the hardest, because um, I have read translations of the same poem, and some feel almost prosaic, others um, sound like very fancy poetry. Uh, and yet, um, I'm not sure which one is closer to the intention of the poet in the other language. Well, if I could just ask you to interrogate that question, um, if you saw ten different productions of Hamlet, um, would that be your question? Well, it all would depends. Would your question be which of these is closest to what Shakespeare intended? Which of these you'd be really interested in the quality of the performance of the various? people involved in the production, right, the director or the actor. Um, and it's very odd to me that translation is a performance of a text, but we have this resistance to considering it as a performance. And instead we have this truth question um, that we don't ask when we're confronted with lots of other performative um, artistic events. We have a call from Philip from Ithaca. Hi, Philip, you're on the air. Uh, hi, can you hear me? Yes, by the way, let me give out the phone number. It's 212-433-9692 if you want to join the conversation, or you can write to us on a show page at org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Go ahead, Philip. Uh, I thank you. This is a question for both of your guests, but maybe especially for uh, Jacques Lesra. Hi, Jacques. It's, it's Philip. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, as a literature professor, what do you say to students, um, for example, who uh, in my class are reading Spanish works uh, in English when they ask, but this isn't the real Calderon or the real Lope de Vega. This is, this is something else. Or so even better, Cervantes, right, where we've had so many better. different yeah. translations of Don yeah. Quixote. Yeah, thank you. Um, yes. I think that you can say a number of things, and none of them will be very satisfactory to the students. One of them would be uh, to say, well, a Spanish student who's reading Cervantes or Calderón or, or Góngora um, and believes him or herself to be reading these things uh, in the language that Cervantes or Calderón or, or Góngora was producing them and understanding them in the way that, that uh, a contemporary of Cervantes or Calderón or Góngora... Jacques, I'm sorry, suddenly your line went bad. We're going to take a little break, and when we come now? back, you can finish answering, okay? okay. 
Uh, my guests are Jacques Lesra, professor of Spanish, English, and comparative literature at NYU. He's also one of the editors of a book called Dictionary of Untranslatables. And uh, if you want to have an idea of how uh, big a problem that is, this is one very large, thick book. And also Esther Allen, professor at Baruch College, co-founder of the Penn World Voices Festival, a board member of the American Literary Translators Association. Stay with us for some more, please explain. And we are back with Esther Allen, professor at Baruch College, and Jacques Lesra, professor of Spanish, English, and Comparative Literature at NYU. And we're talking about translating and uh, the difficulties of difficulties of translating. Perhaps instead of, uh, we should borrow from a book that uh, Professor Lesra has, uh, has contributed to called Untranslatables. Um, and we are taking your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And um, before you come back, uh, continue what you were saying, Professor Lesra, uh, I want to read something that a listener has written in because it uh, is all part of the same conversation. Deborah writes, My book group is reading Fathers and Sons by Ivan Turgenev. So I read the first chapter of 10 different translations, and I felt like I was reading 10 completely different books. They were so varied in tone and especially in humor. Uh, I picked the one I like best. But is there any way to figure out which one comes closest to what Turgenev intended? Uh, Esther, do you want to take this one? Or I, my sense is that asking the question of what Turgenev intended takes us down <clears throat> not necessarily the very best avenues. It seems to me that one way to to address this would be to say, well, what we should do is multiply the numbers of translations, as many as possible, and give ourselves the, the joy of reading as many possible versions of Turgenev's novel as, as possible, and then choose the one that is that gives us the most satisfaction in the moment um it, that would change it would change from person to person it would change from decade to decade and over the course of 100 years <clears throat> uh, what i decided or what people decided was the right translation of turgenev for that moment would change and that seems to me to be one of the great wealths of, of translation that it produces uh, more and more versions of text rather than narrowing them down to what we imagine the author to have intended at one moment. Esther? Well, I, I think any time that we want to narrow the meaning of a work down to what the author intended, uh, we're really... Uh, I, I was speaking yesterday to my students about the film Pandora's Box, because uh, we're about to go see Lulu at the Metropolitan Opera, and that's the 1929 film that made Louise Brooks a, a superstar. Murnau's film. And um, it, it's a fantastic film, and part of the amazing thing about it is that it's it's made before the crash of 1929, although it's very much about uh, the crash of 1929. It's about things losing all value and people losing all their money and terrible loss. So... Was it their intent to make a film about the crash of 1929? Of course it wasn't. They couldn't possibly have known. But 
in retrospect, we read it as a film about the crash of 1929 because we can't do so otherwise. And they were reading the signals in the world that led to that crash, obviously. So um, Borges has a great way of expressing this uh, in his famous story, Pierre Menard, where he has somebody who basically rewrites Cervantes word for word um, at, at the end of the 19th century. And Cervantes's words, rewritten word for word by a Parisian at the end of the 19th century, have a complete completely different meaning than they would have had for his contemporaries because they are at odds with their context and cri criticizing their context, whereas in their, in their own century they were in line with the prevailing uh, modes of thought of the day. So restricting ourselves to imagining that we can grasp what the author intended and that therein lies what the work of art means, I think is always going to be a really reductive way of approaching art. Well, you mentioned Don Quixote. You and Jacques have both translated Don Quixote. And c can you talk about the panel you attended on Cervantes? What did you find out about each translation? Oh, you're talking about the one where uh, there were five different translators mm -hmm. of Don Quixote into five different languages? Yeah, and then we, of course, and even in English, we have Edith Grossman's translation. Yes. We, we have many different translations. What was interesting about that particular panel, which we did at the Instituto Cervantes for the 400th anniversary of the Quixote, was um, that it turned out that these were five entirely different processes. Uh, the person translating the book into English had to cope with a, which, which was Edith Grossman, of course, had to cope with a legacy of dozens and dozens of pre-existing translations, whereas the person translating it into Slovenian was actually the first person ever to translate Don Quixote into Slovenian, so had no legacy of pre-existing translations, which was a handicap in its own way. Uh, the woman translating it into French uh, had decided to use only a, a French vocabulary that would have been available during Cervantes' time, which French is a codified enough language that that was a, an approach she could take, whereas the translator who was moving it into German gaped at her aghast and said there, there was no German language during Cervantes' time. So if I had tried to adopt that approach, it would have made my translation simply impossible. So each, each target language was, in fact, what was defining the process of translation. We think of translation as being defined by the source language, but that's actually not the case. And then the Russians claim that Shakespeare is better in Russian than it is in English. We recently have the Oregon Shakespeare Festival commissioning new translations of Shakespeare from his English to contemporary English, something James Shapiro, uh, Shakespearean specialist, thinks is a terrible idea. Uh, the Germans also tend to think that their Shakespeare is much better than the English Shakespeare, and probably with some reason. Uh, I, you know, the, the translations of Shakespeare into German are extraordinary, magnificent. Um, about translating Shakespeare from Elizabethan or Jacobean English into contemporary English, I'm of many minds, but I, I, I don't think that it's a tremendously bad idea uh, on the surface. I don't, I'm not a purist in, in quite that sense. I think that what a translation of that sort might offer is something that every translation um, of a work offers us, that is the capacity to see the way in which the original work is envisioning itself as a communicative uh, kind of action, as a way of conveying information, a 
conveying beautiful things, persuading, acting in the world. And that we do that, or that is, we get that sense about works when we look at them in translation. And when we look at them in their original language, we very often forget about the difficulties of expression or the expressibility of the work, uh, how it works as a, as a, as a linguistic object, uh, so that if we can bring Shakespeare a little bit more closely into that dynamic of thinking about it as as a problem of expression, that Shakespeare is really trying to express something um, and trying to make it happen performatively, I think was the word that Esther used uh, just a second ago, that's a good thing. And if it has to happen by going through Southern Californian English or by going through Oregonian English or by going through some, some uh, non-Elizabethan or non-Jacobean English, that's fine. It could do that that way or it could go, do it by going through Slovenian, by, by going through Spanish uh, or into uh, nor, uh, some, other, some other language as well. Let's take yeah, a call. I mean, for, go ahead, Esther. I, I so agree with what Jacques just said. I mean, translation always extends the original. It doesn't have to replace the original, especially not in the case of Shakespeare. That, that corpus is amply studied and compiled. It will remain available to us. Uh, we're not in any fear of losing it. Right. And, uh, and, and the more that we can extend it, into other languages, including contemporary English, uh, we, we enrich it. And if some of those translations are failures, which inevitably anything that is exposed to performance is exposed to the possibility of a, of a failed performance, uh, that's not going to it, you know, detract from our ability to get at the original if we deem that to be a failure and, and, or prevent us from proposing a different and better performance. Right, and on the contrary, I think that a failure can tell us um, at times something really interesting about the original. Uh, so a, a bad translation is in that way very often a really good way to read an original. Uh, so bad translation of, for example, the, the very famous translation of, you mentioned Hamlet earlier, into French of the to be or not to be um, line uh, goes in French être ou ne pas être, voilà le grand peut-être, which is, because peut-être sounds like potato, it's very often thought of as the great potato version of, of, of being. So that's, that's a really bad translation um, in that sense, le grand peut-être, the great perhaps. Um, but it tells us a little bit about the specifics of the English. Uh, uh, th that is that you have to be attentive to how it sounds <laughs> in a way that you can only get by getting the bad translation folded back onto the original English. Let's take a call from Nancy from Taos, New Mexico. Hi, Nancy. Hi there. Uh, first, thank you so much for the show. I love language. Many years ago in Paris, I was challenged by my husband, who was French, but both, both in French and English, to, uh, in the process of learning French, to translate the title of Pascal's L'Amour. And I want to tell you, I even read the book, and it meant uh, love, but it certainly did not mean just love as we think of love in English when we use the word love, even though we think of it as meaning other things, too. I really could not find any word. I mean, in the years since that, I'm an elderly woman now, uh, maybe there's somebody has translated this this quite wonderful little book, but I found that very interesting. There was the word "l'amour" that could be this free mind, spirit, 
um, there were so many things that I, words that I found. And I wanted to know what you thought about that kind of a, a problem in translation. Well, it's, it's, is it a problem or is it not a problem? I mean, this is often what happens when we, we confront the idea of untranslatability. I think certainly for English speakers, if you see the word l'amour uh, as the title of a book, it's not going to be terribly off-putting. We're used to book titles that remain in French. Les Miserables, right, has been a huge hit on Broadway for m many years. Um, it's a very familiar title to us. Well, um, Les Liaisons Dangereuses. We don't say Mrs. Bovary, right? Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Right, Les Liaisons Dangerous liaisons doesn't sound so good. So if you if you if you feel that you have to come up with a translation, but maybe the solution to that particular issue is to leave it as l'amour, which I suspect uh, would be very alluring to many English-speaking readers. Let's take another call, Ken from Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air. Oh, hi, hi, hi. I've always really regretted the absence in English of, of something that that they call the articular infinitive. I, I hope your guests are, you know, really familiar with that one. Um, a German example would be das Sein. There, there's an important one, um, and and I think that the fact that well, the fact that we 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 lack this thing, in particular, um, has had the effect really. I mean, this is going to sound crazy, of 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 cocking all of English, um, philosophizing certainly, and but maybe English thinking as well, in a certain direction. Uh, philosophically, it's pushed us in the direction of of, of uh, ontologies of things versus Ken, ontologies we're, we're, of processes. Ken, or we're running out of time, but you get his point, don't you? Yeah, and it's it's true. The natural natural and national languages, um, their grammars, their lexicons, their vocabularies, influence how different philosophical traditions imagine themselves and get constituted. So the word truth it has one kind of register of senses in English, verité, another one, all of the uh, Romance languages that go back to veritas, to, to, to the Latin, have one. The Greek, aletheia, has one sense uh, as well. And different philosophical traditions will um, circulate and turn and crystallize around these different lexical and grammatical particularities that each of the national uh, languages has, which makes translating between the languages, say, what is truth in Russian, what is truth in English, what is truth in, in, uh, in German. Which, or in, which uh, leads me to one other thing, and we don't have much time, and listeners have been calling in about it. What happens when you're translating religious texts, which uh, many people feel um, their holy books are the word of God, not open to interpretation? Isn't translation a form of interpretation? Well, you know, uh, uh, look at the history of the translation of the King James Bible. Uh, it is the word of a committee of a number of translators commissioned by a powerful monarch. Um, and it, it, it might be very upsetting to people's religious beliefs to, to, to uh, confront that fact, um, but that remains the fact. Uh, you know, it is it is a, a number of decisions made by a number of human actors that put together that book. Although there was the famous Texan governor who said, if the English language was good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for the <laughs> people of the state of Texas, right? There will always be people who take that point of view. Well, there are other translations of right. those texts, and uh, some the, the King James just happens to be 
quite lovely as poetry, but uh, other people feel that uh, mistakes were made in the translation. And uh, so, uh, to some degree, people uh, like that man in Texas um, are slightly misguided, aren't they? Indeed. I think whenever you you set about saying that there is only one literal sense and that that is best expressed by the sovereign language of God or of a nation or of a particular person, that you're, you're treading on extremely thin ice, and uh, it's very, very dangerous. I've always wondered about whether I didn't read some books too early, because uh, after I read them, uh, then... Uh, I'd read a review of a new translation that said, this is much better than the previous translations. Mm -hmm. Well, and of course, when you read different books, when you read the same translation of the same book at different times in your life, it has a different meaning, right? Because we're, because it's going, being filtered through what we know at any given time in our life. Right. Right. Well, uh, with that in mind, uh, are you going to be retranslating something that we already know, or are you going to find new things? And I have seconds to get an answer. (laughs) I tend to go after the new things. How about you, Jacques? Uh, I go after the new things as well, except in the horrible situation where I have to translate myself. And auto-translation, which we haven't talked about, is the most absurd form of of combination of flattery and abject... uh, Although you know what the author intended. No, I don't. I don't, in (laughs) fact. (laughs) Well, let's leave it there, unfortunately. Uh, Jacques Lesra, professor of English, Spanish, and comparative literature at NYU, one of the editors of the Dictionary of Untranslatables. Esther Allen, professor at Baruch College, co-founder of the Penn World Voices Festival, a board member of the American Literary Translators Association. Thank you both so much. Thank you.